living with the end in mind. How does the Christian story end? The popular perception is that the Christian story ends by some people being plucked from earth to go to this different place, heaven, and earth being forgotten about, destroyed, whatever you think might happen next. It's, a, it's an image of extraction, if you like. I've been watching Hunted quite a lot. Anyone a Hunted fan? Wonderful, me too. And um, at the end of it, they have this extraction moment. They have to get to a certain point at a certain time without being hunted down by these uh, police officers and whoever else they are. And they get extracted. They go up in a helicopter and they're removed away as if that's the, the prize, as if that's the goal. So many people think that that's how the Christian story ends, that some people just have to get to the end of life, know Jesus or whatever it might take, And then we get plucked, as it were, from earth to go somewhere different, somewhere completely new. The biblical image is somewhat different to that. And it's really important that we have this right. Because it's the end that we're all moving towards. N.T. Wright, in the quote that's on the screen now, N.T. Wright, the former bishop of Durham, theologian, great thinker, he said that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. Jesus' resurrection is the start of this era where the aim is not extraction from earth. Some people getting taken away from earth to this new place over here called heaven. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of this era when the aim is to colonize earth with the activity of heaven. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, the very end of the story, talks of a God who comes down and dwells on earth amongst his people. This isn't about extraction. This is about God making his home here. We're not being taken away somewhere new. God is coming here and making his home amongst his people. You might say that God's people aren't moved out, but God moves in, fully and completely, with evil having been done away with. Everything that happens now before that can be a step towards this future. Everything that happens today, this week, next week, can be a step towards earth being colonized with the life of heaven. And these two approaches are so different, right? If you think the the aim in life is just to get to the end and then be snatched up to go somewhere new, then you're not going to have too much regard for what's around you here and now because none of it's going to last, right? Whereas if you think that the aim of it all is for earth to become a colony of heaven, we'll talk about what that might mean in a moment, then everything you do can become a step towards that So the earth becomes colonized with the life of heaven. Everything we do before that great and glorious day can be a step towards it. Our prayers, our work, our parenting and caring for others, our creativity, our art, our leisure can be a step towards that. What's heaven like? Well, let's make that a reality more and more on earth. Heaven is not then just a future destination. Heaven becomes a present hope. And that's what brings us to say that our vision here is to see it in every sphere of Bury 
as it is in heaven. Riffing completely off the Lord's Prayer that N.T. Wright has there mentioned. If then heaven is for now, not just for then, then we need to know what it is. What it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like, what goes on there. Because otherwise, how can we bring something to bear here if we don't really know what it's like? We can't be part of seeing something come to earth if we don't know what it is. We can't be part of bringing something to bury, every bit of bury, if we don't know what it looks and sounds like. So we're going to this passage in Revelation, which gives us a snapshot of heaven. This is an attempt by John to write down this glorious vision that Jesus gives him. And we're going to read from Revelation 4 now. My prayer is that through seeing something of what heaven looks like here, we've got a firmer idea of what Jesus is inviting us to bring to earth here and now. Revelation 4, starting at verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there were what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, And they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So, that is a snapshot of the reality of heaven which we are called to bring now to earth. So, let's just go about and do it, right? Who's signing up to be the living creature with eyes all over. Who wants to look like the ox? Well, of course, that's not exactly what it means. 
This is what is going on in heaven. And what we're called to do is to become saturated with its reality so that we then act like heaven here on earth. This passage starts in verse 1 with John seeing an open door in heaven, an open door, an opportunity, an invitation, new possibilities, open before him, not closed and shut up, but beckoning him forward with a voice, saying to come up, to come in, to come and see. Like the doorway in the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, this doorway opens up into a whole new world. This starts with an open door, and the door is still open, beckoning us to come and to explore what heaven's really like so that for our time left on earth, we can colonize here like it is there, that we become at home with its reality. At once then, John was in the Spirit, and in is the key word here. Pentecost celebrated last Sunday is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We who call Jesus Lord, who've submitted to him, are now full of his Holy Spirit. And the invitation is for us to go on being filled. Here, John says he's in the Spirit. And there's something slightly different between those two things. The Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit. And in one of the ways it describes it is being like a deposit of all that is to come. Now, if you've ever bought something big, you might have paid a deposit. And a deposit kind of seals your ownership of that thing. It books the date. It's not the full payment, but it's enough of it in order for the person to see, okay, they're serious about this. And we'll hold the date for them and we'll give them some time to pay the balance. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a little bit like a deposit. The Holy Spirit given to us now is like a deposit. It's not the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That will come in heaven, like we see here, where John is in the Spirit. Right now we get a deposit. It's still brilliant. It's still wonderful. It's exactly the same Holy Spirit. But it's important for us to remember that we don't have everything here and now. Because here and now, evil is still a reality. Sin is still on a rampage. That though we've received a new nature, a new way of being, there's still a war within us, isn't there? Between the spirit and the flesh, in the words of Romans. Life according to God and life according to us. They're still at war with each other, even though we have the Holy Spirit. What John's saying here is that he is in the Spirit. Evil and sin and rebellion against God is done away with. And rather than the Spirit just being in him, he is in the Spirit. Every side of him covered. Every part of him completely surrounded by all that God is. In Romans 7, Paul exemplifies a little bit about what is going on here with this tussle that we experience. He says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
Paul's saying that even though I'm trying to follow God, even though I'm full of his Holy Spirit, even though I've spent my life proclaiming him and bearing the consequences, often in the form of persecution, there's still some good things that I want to do and I don't do. There's still some bad things that I don't want to do, and yet I still find myself doing them. The reality of the tussle is real. And that's the reality for all of us this side of Jesus' return. We can be full of his spirit, and we're praying that more and more as we're full, we begin to look like him, that sin loses its hold around us, that we're cut off from it. But the reality is real, that there is evil still around us that we have the spirit as a deposit, but the full balance hasn't yet been paid. We're looking forward to this for John, where he has the deposit and the balance. Everything of the spirit is his there and then. Going on through our reading then, we see a beautiful throne with jasper, carnelian, emerald. We see a crystal clear sea. And there's a throne there, one main throne with someone sitting on it, but then 24 other thrones, all pointed towards this one throne, with an elder sitting on those thrones, dressed in white, adorned with gold, gathered around this central throne, from which comes lightning and thunder. And then we're introduced to these creatures, gathered round near the throne, who never stop singing, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is this, you are set apart. You are different. You are unlike any other God. We've never met anyone like you. And we can't just say it once because it's so overwhelming. It's holy, holy, holy. The way to emphasize something in the time of the Bible wasn't to underline it or put it in bold. It wasn't to shout it really loud. It was to say it again and again and again. Holy, Holy, holy. And on this day where many churches remember the Trinity particularly, we also think of the holiness of God in his triuneness. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Holy Spirit. And then these creatures go on to say, who was and is and is to come. God, you are eternal. You are before all beginnings and you're after all ends. And whenever these four creatures give glory and honor and thanks, and remember that's constantly, 24 elders fall down, leave their thrones, fall down before God, and they begin their own song. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they came to be. The elders hear this song of praise and respond with their own. This is a snapshot of the reality of heaven. The call for us as Christians now is to bring the reality of heaven, to colonize earth here and now. And though it might seem out there, though it might seem different, it is the future to which all of us are headed. The invitation for us, like John, is to step through that open door of invitation to say, maybe God's inviting me to be a part of this heavenly thing. 
The invitation is to be filled and to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit until that day when you are in the Spirit in your entirety, where evil and sin and rebellion is done away with. The invitation is then to see the awe and the wonder of heaven. Be so consumed by it, so overwhelmed with it, that you live it down here on earth, even though you're not there yet. And he right used that term, a colony, that we are to colonize earth with the life of heaven. To think of what a colony is, it's an outpost of one place operating in a different place. It's people who live by one culture even when they're in a different place. So it's people who all move. If, if we were all to move to another country but continue to live as if we were from Barry, eating the food that we would have eaten, speaking the language that we would have spoken, what would be is a little colony of Berry wherever we'd choose, chosen to set up camp. A colony is one place being lived in the other a group of people operating by norms and principles who don't be consumed by the culture that they're surrounded by there and then, but live by a different way. N.T. Wright is saying, colonize earth with the life of heaven. Be so consumed with the life of heaven. Know it's inside out that it's second nature to live like that here on earth, even though you're not there yet. What's going on then in heaven that we're to bring to earth and colonize here. Well, I think there are three main things from this passage for us to take forward today. Let's remember the call for us is to be on earth, but living like we're in heaven. To work for that day when the two overlap more and more and more. There's a reason we chose the little icon that we did because for us, we see the fullness of heaven overlapping more and more and more with the emptiness of earth until such a day as the two are one. That's what we want to be here. A colony of heaven here in Berry, seeing every part of it rewritten for God's glory. Three things then that we see from this passage that we can be part of colonizing here on earth. The first might be surprising. The first thing I see in this is beauty. Listed time and time and time again are the emeralds, or the precious jewels used, the crystal clear sea. Everything in heaven is well put together. It's well ordered and it gives glory to God. It's not haphazard or chaotic. It's not just thrown together however it came. There's a beauty about the way it's been put together. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, he speaks of beauty as being an act of resistance against the disorder of the world. The world around us is pretty chaotic, isn't it? Pretty disordered. And beauty is one way that we respond to that by saying we serve a beautiful God who loves creativity, who loves beauty and splendor. Beauty is what we see in heaven, and I want to see beauty here on earth. I want art and creativity to bubble up from here. I want the natural world cleaned up. And we're starting to do some things in that domain, even with our church grounds, longing to take care of what God's given us to bring it to even greater beauty. It's why we'd also love the inside of this place 
every part of it to point people to Jesus. Not just so that it's tidy and neat because we like it that way, but well put together, welcoming, and a place where people are lifted even as they walk through the door to see a beautiful God behind the beauty that his people bring about. The second thing I see then after beauty is purity. Did you notice that the robes of the elders are brilliant, clean, white? The crystal clear sea. Nothing's tarnished in heaven. Nothing's tainted. Nothing's tinged. Everything is perfect and pure and holy. And that's because this is a place where evil is no more. Where submission has been replaced has replaced, rather, rebellion, where lives and hearts and minds are clean. Heaven is a pure place. And if we're to see that on earth as it is in heaven, my prayer is that a holy God would create holy people amongst us. Not polishing ourselves up to make ourselves look great, but letting God form his image in us so that we can say, don't we serve an amazing God? That he would do this for me working with him every day to become more and more like him, pure as he is pure. Philippians 4 verse 8 gives us a way that we might start about on this journey. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Maybe that's a verse for us all to meditate on, to chew over this week, to fill our minds with what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, so that our minds become a little bit purer, so that we let the holiness of God become the holiness that he is working out through us. I long for a holy God to make us a holy people who know that the purity and power at work in them is stronger than the chaos around them. I once heard it said that bleach isn't scared of a stain because bleach knows that it's more powerful, right? It's the stain that needs to be scared. And I believe that the holiness and the purity that God will wreak within us means that we don't need to be scared of the stainers of the world. The bleach isn't scared because the holiness of God isn't scared, right? We can go into a disordered, chaotic world, a world that doesn't know God, and live like we know him because we do, and trust that it will change, not that it will change us. Finally, and probably most obviously, the third thing I see in this passage is worship. This is the thing that comes through clearest and loudest. Heaven is about worship. Right worship, passionate worship, continual worship. The creatures sing continually, holy, holy, holy. The elders respond by falling down and singing worthy. Be glorified, be honored, creator God. Worship is to God and to God alone. The thing that's really struck me as I read this passage again this week was to think about all those thrones. I think if you were to picture heaven, you'd imagine there'd be one throne, right? A big one in the middle, because that's where God's going to sit, 
Maybe he'll have a couple of seats around the side for those who are helping him. We imagine there to be one throne. What Revelation 4 says is that there are actually 25 thrones. There's one big one in the middle, and orchestrated around them are 24 others. I think if that were today, the 24 other thrones would start trying to get themselves bigger and better and start to look a bit more like the one in the middle, wouldn't they? The people sat around the 24 thrones would try and organize a coup or something, take out the person in the middle, and we want that place for ourselves. What we see here is none of that. It's almost as if the elders don't think they deserve a throne because they keep falling off them in worship and praise. The 24 thrones know that their only rightful thing to do is to orchestrate themselves around the one true throne. Where on earth this would bring competition and strife, where there'd be people trying to outdo each other. I want to be on the the first of the 24 thrones because I'm better than all of them, right? We don't get a hint of that here because they know that they're there because of grace. And they're there because of God. And that it's almost as if they don't deserve a throne, but he's given them one anyway. Where on earth this would bring division and competition and strife. In heaven it brings a unity of praise. It brings complete submission to God above all. The worship that we see here is wholehearted. It's passionate. It's everything we've got kind of worship. And it's continual. There's not a point where they think, okay, we've filled our quota. God's probably heard us once enough already. They just go on and on because it's almost as if, well, my next breath is another reason to praise, right? So I've got to go back to him and thank him for that one. And by the time I've got there, I've had a few more. So what am I going to do about them? Praise goes on and on and on because God is so good and so worthy. And so as we think about that on earth as in heaven... I want us to be a people who worship God and worship him alone. No idols, no counterfeit gods, no people taking up more room than they really should, trying to grab the limelight. Worship God and worship him alone. I want our worship to be passionate, to be fierce, to be the kind of thing that we fight to do and want to do. And I want it to be worship that goes on forever. Yes, as we gather. But worship that continues onwards from this place. So that your workstation becomes your worship station. Your morning, your noon, your night are overcome with praise of God in whatever form that looks like for you. We're to be a people that are so saturated with the reality of heaven that it's natural and easy for us to colonize that here on earth. To live like we're in heaven already, even though that's a future reality, we know it can also be a present hope. And step by step by step, bit of beauty by bit of beauty, bit of purity by bit of purity, bit of worship by bit of worship, earth, bury your street, your road, your friends, can become colonized with the activity of heaven, even now here on earth.